Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. So over the past five months, I have really enjoyed talking with every guest that has come on the podcast and learning about what community and belonging look like in their lives. I have learned a lot, and honestly, I'm still processing in many ways everything I've learned, but I hope to share that with you guys soon. Uh, But this week, we are back with our question and response episode, and I want to thank each and every one of you guys who sent in questions. Now, why am I calling it question and response instead of question and answer? Well, it's because, as I heard when listening to one of my favorite podcasts called The Bible Project, which y'all need to listen to, it's really good. Uh, On that podcast, they called their time of question and answer question and response because the word answer seems to convey that we have all of the information needed to respond to the questions asked. And honestly, that's just not true. We don't have all the answers, but I do hope that through the responses of our guests, you may be able to take something away. Also, sadly, we weren't able to get to every question, nor were we able to talk with every guest. So instead, I got to circle back with five of our guests and ask them some key questions that multiple people sent in. So I am really hoping you enjoy this conversation and get something out of hearing their responses. All right, y'all, we are here for the question and answer episode. And right now I am back with the original episoder who started it all, Meg. The OG. The OG. Woo. Hey, everybody. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. 
It's really great to be back. How has it been being the OG of the <laughs> episodes of Life? It's been episode? so weird. So I spoke at Revoice uh, back in June, and the, the podcast had come out, come out before that. And people were coming up to me like, oh, yeah, I heard you on your podcast. And I was like, what? That's so weird. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been really, it's been really good. Uh, still doing the community living thing. It's been really cool seeing how the Side B, Life on Side B podcast has been unfolding. Mm. And, yeah, just really appreciate you, Josh, and all the people that have been on here and the conversations that you guys are having. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been really funny how many times I've had people who listen to the podcast and but especially with you, when somehow they meet you, they go, Oh, that's Meg boss. And I'm like, yes, that's Meg. (laughs) Isn't she amazing? Yeah. It's quite. Yeah. It has been a lot of fun in this season being able to have the conversations and, and learn and grow. So in this time of question and answer, um, first of all, I want to acknowledge, obviously, these questions are about intentional communities we talked about and we hear a crying baby. Mm-hmm. Obviously, hey, intentional oh, yeah. community time. Love it. Woo. Yeah, I think it, right now it's right around the time that some of my baby roommates are waking up from their naps. So we might get a little glimpse of our community. You see community time. I love it. So one person sent in a question for you about what do you do when, if, when, or if a non-Christian would want to be part of your intentional community, how would you handle that? Would that be something you were open to? Yes or no? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's awesome that someone is asking that. Um, and thinking critically through that, because I think it's totally worth doing that. I'll admit that I'm speaking from a place of, I haven't had this happen particularly to me, uh, but in just knowing kind of what community can look like in different scenarios, I would offer just kind of what I have for the, the differences between a fully Christian community or one that's kind of mixed in mm-hmm. core values. Um, so I feel like I should start with a couple of Bible verses. Um, sure thing. One of them that came to mind was Psalm 133.1, um, which just says how good it is when brothers or siblings, depending on your tra- translation, dwell together in unity. Um, so I would say there's something beautiful when there can be a unity in your house. Um, and I think that can look like... Um, just sharing core values. If, if everyone in a household or in a community has some kind of core value that they're, they all share and a core vision for what their community looks like, um, it's going to be awesome. So mm-hmm. obviously this verse is kind of applying to the people of God. I think you can apply that in other situations too. Um, I also do think there's something uniquely special about unity among those following Jesus. So, and then the, the second verse that came to mind for me on this one is Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, which talks about basically like if there isn't vision, then the people perish. So some people would say this talk, this is talking about like in times where there's no prophecy in the land, um, mm-hmm. there's not direction or vision for, uh, for those people, for that community. 
But mm. I think the principle still stands that uh, it's good to be able to move forward with things with a vision and knowing what we want. And not just what we want, but also like what what is God laid on my heart? Where is he directing me in this? Mm. So the way the question was phrased, it was something like, what should I do if someone else comes to me with this question? Yeah. And I think since the, the question originated with someone else, it's really important to look at what is your original and initial vision for your community. Um, and to, to really know what your vision, what your values are for your community first. Um, and to make sure that those don't drift. So if, if having people who aren't Christian in your community is part of that vision, awesome. Um, there's not a conflict on, on that matter. Uh, but if it's something where you really were envisioning, hey, we want to have this Christian community where we can come together, uh, talk about you know, matters of faith within our household without anyone feeling alienated, and then we can mm-hmm. go out and kind of share that with other people um, depending on where they're at with Christianity. If, if you're wanting to keep that, uh, you know, Christian unity in your house, then I would say don't let that vision drift. Another thing that can be a problem, and this is something too where I think everyone's intention is going to be the same, that you want to honor everyone involved, right? Uh, you don't want to seem like, or even in actuality, be excluding someone from your community for some Mm -hmm. systematic reason you don't you know there's a question of like would i be discriminating if i'm telling someone because of their religious belief or something like that that they couldn't participate in my community and i think that's important questions to ask Mm -hmm. um along the lines of honoring all people involved i do want to address the idea of um a potential power gradient that can happen if there's a bunch of Christians and then one person who's not a Christian. Um, and I've seen this in, in either living situations or group situations where there's people who are, you know, really dedicated to Jesus. He's their number one reason that they're going about their day. And then there's other people who they don't have that same level of like, they might be curious about Jesus, but he's not necessarily number one in their life at that point in time there can be kind of this feeling of judgment, whether that's perceived or real, that, um, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not as loved, I'm not as valued, because I'm not where these people are at. Um, and I think that can be a problem, even with people who, like, whether someone is just not completely on, on board at, in this time in the relationship with God, or just they have never been a Christian, they might even be curious about Christianity but there can be kind of this unnecessary pressure there that can cause a lot of division or uh, just sense of not being valued. Hmm. So I would say it can actually be honoring to other people to prevent that potential power gradient from happening and just saying, you know what, like I really respect where you're at. Uh, Here's where my community is at. Here's where, where our vision is at. And if you ever get to a place where your vision and ours are matched up, we would love to have you here. Um, in the meantime, we want to make sure that you have a place where the vision and values can, can match up with where you're at and what you're wanting in, in a community. 
That makes that makes a lot of sense. I definitely think so because you know, obviously, you have to make, especially when you're in an intentional community, you have to make sure that everyone is is aligned with the vision that you have that unites you. You know, yes, and absolutely. that's a critical part of community. I mean, whatever community that is, it's a critical part mm-hmm. um, because when you don't have unity in that vision, all of the other things that you have different are just going to culminate and just come and and tear it apart many times or at least make yeah. it much more difficult absolutely yeah and it, i mean talking about unity i think we can have this idea in our minds that unity means zero diversity and i i'm not saying that at all like no. of anyone i'm someone who really values diversity in our communities we need to be around people who are different from us yes um sometimes that does look like i need to not just be in you know, this like holy huddle of Christians, so to speak, throughout my life. Mm-hmm. And some, as someone who's in full-time ministry, it's, it can sometimes be difficult to get out of that Christian bubble, but I need people who aren't Christian in my life. Mm-hmm. And there's something that other people might be missing out on that I could offer them. Um, and, you know, I, I want to be able to share the gospel with other people. Um, so that's needed personality differences, race and ethnicity, um, age differences. I'm actually someone who has almost like, I've been hesitant about living with just other people who are my age or my gender or just other single LGBT Christians because I feel so drawn toward diversity. So Mm -hmm. I would say diversity of all different kinds is important. Um, but with the core values and vision of a community, that's something that really does need to be unified. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think in, you know, push back on me if you think that you disagree. Um, but I think also that even if there's a non-Christian who wants to be part of the community and you're like, well, there's at least some of these like kind of things that we, we really feel everyone living in, in the community needs to be united on in belief and vision, that doesn't necessarily mean that the non-Christian is therefore excommunicated in every way of community. Like you can still be able to have a person like, we want you part of our community. Yeah. Even if you're maybe not living in the house or something, that doesn't necessarily need to negate, like you are an outcast. Um, Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that can also show up in like financial differences, not just beliefs, but like Mm -hmm. if you're, if someone is just not in a good financial situation you really want to have them come live with you but finances might be an aspect of tension in that community it might be better to just wait and and just wait till that person might be in a better financial situation um because you want to be able to have as much stability in in that area as possible yeah yeah i think that i think that is a really major point. And I love how you said about that. It's not, we need diversity. It's not a thing of having unity and everything. We need that diversity, but within that diversity, there has to be unified on something, obviously, you know, and many times if you're in a Christian intentional community, the thing that unites us is Jesus. Right. And that's what makes it even much more crazy. I think I've talked in this podcast before about that first like Christian small group that I was part of when I became a Christian. And it was so weird because it was all these different kinds of people that you would never think you would see in a group together. But then Mm -hmm. the only thing that we had in common was Jesus. 
that's it. Yeah. But then when you, when you are unified on something like that, it makes your di- diversity so much more beautiful. I feel mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. like, how could you all be in a room together? And it's like, well, Jesus, that's the whole reason we're here, you know? Yeah. So being able to have that diversity and be able to learn from each other, even as you walk together under that united vision. Mm -hmm. Another exception to that also might be if there's a temporary kind of uh, spot in your community. So Uh if there's people like, um, I know of a community where they offer one of their rooms free in partnership with another organization that helps, uh, helps people to exit homelessness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they're in a place where they're transitioning into housing. They're, they're trying to get an apartment, um, move, move out of, you know, a group home or something like that. And they're just kind of waiting for their, their paperwork to go through and they need a place to stay. So it might be a, a two week thing and they might not know anything about, um, about that person. But if it's something that's temporary, I think there's a lot more flexibility of um, what's going to be what, what you can have in your house. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a very good point because I think, I think even maybe Melinda brought that up is something that they have in their community. I can't remember. I'll have to ask her. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, cause that's a, that is a major point um, that that's a reality. Sometimes, you know, there may be opportunities for people to come and live in a short term mm-hmm. time or sure. depending on the community. So, yeah. well, great. I want to thank you for sharing this. Was there anything else you wanted to share before we go related to this? Um. I think the only other thing might be just talking about uh, kids in the home. Cause obviously mm-hmm. whether you're living with a family, you might be fostering uh, you might have adopted kids in your house. I think that's also a little bit different uh, yeah. cause you, there's someone who in a sense is already part of your family. They're sticking around, not necessarily on the basis of Jesus in a Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something you can necessarily force or pressure, nor would I recommend doing that yeah. uh, with kids. But that, in that case, the vision value is, hey, we're family. We want to, you know, take care of you and look at, look after your needs and be your family. Um, so, and also, again, I, like I would love to hear what other people say. I I just want to admit that my knowledge and understanding on this is pretty limited. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear, um, what other people might have to say. Great. I love it. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for being the original OG of like, <laughs> that will forever be your name. <laughs> and I will claim it okay. for you.
Okay, everyone. Well, now we are talking with Melinda again. Woo! Melinda, thanks so much <laughs> for coming back on. You're welcome. Yeah, we didn't scare you away so far. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> so we have two questions for you that people mm-hmm. The first one is that you said you did not realize you were gay till you were 34. So this person wants to know, what was that experience like of coming to the conclusion uh, later in life? Yeah, that was complicated by the fact that I'd been married for 10 years and I had a three-year-old son. Mm. I think it was also complicated by the fact that it was sort of an abstract proposition. I didn't fall in love with someone. Most women who come out later in life come out because they fall in love with somebody and they realized, oh, that's what I've been missing all my life. Yeah. For me, that was not the case. In some ways, it's simpler because you can say, okay, look, there's this new thing in my life and I'm going to follow it. Or there's this new thing in my life and I'm not going to follow it, but it's going to be a major factor for a while until I figure out how to deal with it. But neither of those were an issue for me. So for me, a lot of my coming out process to myself was, what does this mean for my marriage? Does it explain anything about my experience so far? And to some extent it did. I mean, for one thing, it explained why, you know, my husband was pretty much always the one who would initiate sex. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I had been raised to think that men are always more interested in sex than women. So I never really thought about it until that point. Yeah. And, you know, coming up in the 60s and 70s, there was still a very unclear vision of what female sexuality was about. I mean, I remember the first Playgirl magazine, the idea that women would want to look at naked men was kind of revolutionary. Whereas it's always been accepted that Mm -hmm. men wanted to look at naked women or, you know, in some cases naked men, but that wasn't Mm -hmm. even on my radar at that point. So the idea that most women actually desire men was more of a joke to me coming up than anything else. And so the fact that I didn't, didn't raise any flags. But looking back, you know, at 34, it's like, oh, that's why I always thought my friends were joking when they were talking about how hot guys were. I, you know, because when I was growing up, it was mostly joking. Now, it's very much part of the culture. Women's sexual desire is much more part of the cultural landscape than it was when I was growing up. And to the extent that, you know, women are engaging more and more in pornography, women are engaging more and more in uh, sex positive activity and sex positive activism. I mean, none of that was around when I was coming up. Yeah. So identifying myself as gay was sort of part of a larger understanding for me of what it meant to be a sexual person and a sexual person who happens to be a woman. And I think 
just the timing of it in my personal life kind of corresponded with an opening or, or uh, in some ways a cultural shift to an acceptance of women's sexuality in general, mm. which has been interesting for me to watch from my perspective, see how younger women coming up uh, have a whole set of different pressures on them than I did. Uh, so part of it was my awakening to my own sexuality was part of a larger cultural awakening just because I happened to be right there at that particular historical moment. So that was interesting to watch. The second thing that was complicated was that I was Catholic and I had no intention of getting a divorce over this. And my husband was pretty much content to say, okay, well, we've gone along like this for this long. Is anything going to change? And when I said no, he's like, okay, well, we'll keep going. So that would have been another complicating thing is if he had had an issue with my identifying as gay or personally, which he never did, or if I had wanted to come out more publicly as gay, which I had no intention of doing Mm -hmm. at the time. Now, you know, that's a valid question. Why didn't I feel that was necessary for me at the time? Yeah. Well, this was 1996, and I had already been through a good part of the AIDS crisis with my gay friends. And they already knew I was an ally. Um, It wasn't a matter of sort of coming from a really conservative position on the issue of same-sex, you know, folks, same-sex attracted folks or gay folks. Uh, I didn't feel a whole lot of internalized shame. I wasn't in in a community that talked about it overtly all the time. I mean, in some ways... There was no reason at that point in my life to be public about it. Now, if I'd been in a really conservative church where I felt that people needed to hear the story, but I was in a very liberal Catholic church. There were gay people everywhere. Um, And I was also working for a fairly liberal evangelical church that, you know, had gay folks in leadership, et cetera. Uh, But if I had been in a position where I felt that I had to fight against my gay identity, then that might've been different. Yeah. But I had a very gentle and easy coming out process. It wasn't until my marriage was over for other reasons that I felt, huh, one of the side effects of this is that I'll now talk about this side of my life in public. Because to some extent, coming out as a lesbian while I was, nobody had coined the term mixed orientation marriage. There Mm -hmm. was no awareness that that was even a thing. At least nobody I knew and nobody I'd ever heard of. So to come out as gay while you're married to a man, it's like, what does that make him? I mean, that was the only category I had for it at the time. So, yeah, I think if I were coming out, if I were married, if I were 34 now and married, I would have a category. I would say, oh, I'm in a mixed orientation marriage. And I might have talked to other people about that and come out to those people. And, you know, uh, 
that would be a different situation. But there was no group like this. GCN hadn't even started yet, let alone any other of the sub-movements that it spawned. Uh, so, so coming out for me at 34 was more a realization of my own development and a realization that it wasn't the most important part of my life and it wasn't going to affect my marriage. And also starting to look around and see, you know, where, where the culture was going with regard to sexual issues in a lot of ways. I did occasionally come out to friends, Mm -hmm. (laughs) individual friends, like, for example, after I'd come out to myself, I went back to the person who originally asked me the question, huh, Whitney? Yeah, what's that about? Um, and told her, so, that looks like I'm gay. And she goes, yeah, so are half my housemates. So, you know, it was no big deal yeah. to her at that time. It's like, huh, what do you know? And then after that, if I was going to be in a situation where I was going to be in intimate proximity, like sharing a hotel room at a women's retreat, mm-hmm. I would come out to that person because I wouldn't want them to find out later and feel like I had been hiding something yeah. that I should have like told you had, them. Like you had been lying or something. Right. Yeah. So I came out to like two of my best friends, the two people that I would usually travel with, like when we went to women's retreats or mm-hmm. we went to church conferences or children's ministry things. So I did come out to a couple of other people um, whose questions were really, well, you know, kind of, so what? Is this mm. going to change anything? You know? Yeah. Often I would get that, wait, do you mean you're attracted to me? And I'm like, no. <laughs> no. Uh, and I think looking back on it now, uh, I suspect that I'm somewhere on the ace spectrum mm. because I get crushes on women so very rarely. And I've never fallen in love with a woman yeah. Other than my therapist, and that doesn't really count. Because <laughs> that was a therapy thing, you know? Yes. Well, People do that. I can um, understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. It's, so, it's so funny you're talking about when coming out to friends, especially when you come out to friends of the same sex, and that's such right. a common question that I normally get. So does, are you telling me this because you're attracted to me? And it's like, right. no, that's no. literally not why. <laughs> It's the opposite of I almost. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, yeah. that's so good. Um, yeah. All right. Well, then the second question that we got for you was, mm-hmm. what advice do you have for younger side B Christians that you wish you could have known earlier in your life? Yeah, there are a few things I really wish I had known earlier. One, it's possible to be gay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That was probably the biggest gap that fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, is never going to happen again Mm -hmm. because our culture is so saturated with LGBTQ images. Mm -hmm. That's great on the one hand. I'm not always thrilled by the kinds of images they are, but I'm not always thrilled by the kinds of ways that heterosexual sexuality is portrayed in our culture. So there's that. But no seven or eight-year-old or 15-year-old growing up is going to be unaware of the possibility that a woman can be gay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but if you're growing up in a church that is so conservative that you might as well be back in the 50s or 60s, -hmm. that might still be the case. So the first thing I would want to tell younger folks is that 
just because your church says you can't be gay and Christian doesn't mean it's true. You can be gay and Christian. So that's the first, I mean, and the church is almost, the very conservative church is like the last bastion of that, Mm -hmm. that you can't be gay or there's something wrong with being gay. Mm -hmm. So at least, you know, in the United States, worldwide, it's a different issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, if this is someone in the global majority and they're in a situation where they're being told they can't be gay and Christian, then that would be the first thing. Yes, you can be gay and Christian. Mm -hmm. You can be gay and not an abomination. You can be gay and totally loved by God. That's mm-hmm. the first thing I want to make sure they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't even have the you could be gay part. So, mm-hmm. Which in some ways was a blessing because I wasn't internalizing those messages. But in other ways, it would be a lot better if they found out earlier than later. The second might be, don't get married too young. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the more we learn about brain development, you're not really even fully baked until you're at least 24. Uh, so if you find yourself in a long-term relationship that started in your teens, just be really aware that things might change radically in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I find lots of young uh, gay and lesbian folks are getting married very young. And then, well, they may have some inkling that they're gay. They're not really, they're still kind of halfway hoping it could change or they're halfway hoping that there's this one person that they could still make a life with. And for some folks, that's true. But for most folks, it just means you're not quite done developing yet. And you're making really long-term decisions on kind of shifting sands. Now, that is not to say that everybody who gets married young has made a mistake. Many, I, <laughs> some very good friends of mine started dating in junior high, uh, and they're still married after more than 40 years. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Our culture, I think, says that should be the rule. Oh, you find your true love and you, when you're young and you stay with them forever. That doesn't really happen all that often. I know, like how many of the Disney princesses are like 16 years old or 17 (laughs) years old when they find their soulmate? Yeah, that toxic. Okay, there's a wonderful book from the 70s called The Cinderella Complex, but Uh, we'll get into that some other time. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, don't come And It might not even be marriage. It might be just a really strong long-term, like the, the person you date freshman year in college may really think you're the one forever you're both going to change a lot. And so getting yourself locked into an exclusive relationship when you're 18 or 19 or 16 or 17 doesn't leave room for a lot of development. Yeah. And I just, sorry, I just heard a really quick, a really cool quote a few days ago. I can't remember who it was, um, but a, a guy was saying, my wife has been married to four men and I am all four of those men. Yeah, 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 I saw that. I can't remember. Four or five, anyway. Yeah, something like that. But I thought it was really cool of like talking about how he changed. And when you get married, you're not just marrying the person that you know. You're marrying whoever they become Mm -hmm. as well. Right. Yeah. Another thing I'd tell young people is your needs matter. Mm. And women, young women especially, are trained to put other people's needs first. 
Mm. Yeah. It's so the idea that your needs, your wishes, your desires matter, especially, I mean, in a lot of cases, young women growing up are thinking their job is to please their boyfriend. His, his needs, I mean, and the whole toxic purity culture has centered male desire, male images to the extent that it's women's, it's girls' fault if men sin, right? Yeah. Yes. With everything from dress codes to, well, we won't go too deep in that. But the idea that, especially for young girls, what, who you are and what you want matters to you and to God just as much as whatever guy you're interested in or whatever guy the society's pushing on you or whatever female roles the society's pushing on you. Mm. I mean, if I had been told that the fact that I didn't really want to have sex with this guy was just as important as the fact that he wanted to have sex with me, that would have been a different conversation, a different way of thinking about growing up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true with same-sex relationships, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of young women feel pressured. I can mostly only talk to young women because, you know, it's different for girls. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of young women coming up are pressured by our current society to find a girlfriend, and then their girlfriend becomes the most important thing. So other people's desires are not more important than yours. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, that's another thing that I think doesn't get told to young people often enough. Yeah, I I totally agree. And, yeah, especially with young girls, like you said, is that Mm -hmm. we – for whatever, you know, intentions, right or wrong, you know, teach young girls that they need to put other people's, you know, desires first before their own and needs before mm-hmm. their own. But then we never tell them enough that their needs matter, that their desires right. matter. And being able to have that mm-hmm. as a very forefront message to young girls and to young guys too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's great. Thank you for sharing all of that. You know, one of the things that I love is, and I think that we need more of, not only just among side B Christians, but among all LGBT Christians, among all Christians in general is just, Mm -hmm. um, I want to thank you for giving that advice because Mm -hmm. I think we need more voices of people who have gone before us and who have gone through this walk longer and have more experience to be able to learn and possibly evade some of the things that we might be able to, <laughs> to <laughs> learn from and just grow in a greater way. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for giving that advice. One last thing yeah. I want to put in a plug for community. Yes. Our culture yes. tells us that you have to find one person to meet all your needs, mm-hmm. straight, gay, female. You're supposed to be looking for the one. Mm. What if the one is really a bunch? And I'm not talking necessarily polyamory, although we joke about being celibate polyamorous, but. um, Very true. (laughs) One person is really not the answer to your life's quest, no matter who it is. Even Jesus isn't the one person. Because a lot of, there's a lot of verbiage about, you know, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is your true love. It's like, yeah, that's fine. You still need people. Yes. So find your people. Mm -hmm. 
I, I totally, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's such a bad message, especially even evangelical Christianity where we say, oh, Jesus is all you need. And uh-uh. it's like, well, it depends on what you're meaning by that statement. Like, uh-huh. like yes, for salvation, Jesus is all you need, <laughs> but you need more than that in your life. Uh-huh. And even the Bible says so. Like how many uh-huh. your other, you know, each other passages. Sure. Um, we have is just showing the need for community. So that is a great point. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. And I'm hoping in the future we can have you back on once again. Oh, sure. I'm always willing to talk. Love talking to you, Josh. And I hope I can be helpful in any other way. All right. Well, we're back again. And in this segment, we're talking with Dean and Lisa. I'm so glad to be talking to you guys again. Thanks. I I mean, I'm glad to be back. Lisa, how are you feeling? I'm I'm pretty excited that he's willing to actually deal with us again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have to say, your guys' episodes were two of the most listened to episodes of the season. So, And I had multiple people write in saying that they were very impacted by both of your episodes and what you had to share. Um, Some people had even said that through your episodes was the first time they had learned about side B and what it meant to be side B in marriage. So you guys really affected some people's lives. Cool. That's fun. Well, I think it's all because of Lisa. She's the best one out of the Mm. two. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm rolling my eyes right now. (laughs) Just so we're clarifying, the joy of podcasts is you can't see my facial expressions right now. I would love... One of severe judgment. Oh, my God. Lisa, of all people that I interviewed, I feel like you would be the most fun to interview on video. I I can attest to that. She would be. I just... She doesn't hide much. That's what I was saying. It's like, I feel like when we did our episode, I was like able to feel the facial expressions which i love (laughs) yeah you should be married to her you feel a lot of facial expressions all the time (laughs) i love it i love it okay so for you guys we had two questions sent in over the past few weeks for um from different listeners and so We'll go ahead and start with the first one, and you guys can share your thoughts and and your feedback. How do you guys deal with emotional codependency, whether with each other or with other people? How do you recognize it, correct it, or avoid it without simply avoiding community? That's a lot in one question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, some of it was multiple people would ask what sounded like a similar question. I'm like, I'm going to merge this into one. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's all about code, emotional codependency. And emotional codependency, code yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know for, for Lisa and I, one of the things that was probably, I think for us it's probably fortunate, is that uh, in our marriage we haven't necessarily dealt with codependency. Um, now, I have wrestled with codependency for a majority of my life. A lot of my life up until 
Lisa and I started dating was spent ju- jumping from one codependent relationship to another. So I had to work through a lot of that. And I had done that mostly before we got married, but I know that I still have those tendencies. Mm. Uh, and so for me, it's kind of, a, I, ha- I try to make sure I have safeguards uh, around uh, my relationships where I know I could be, tend towards codependency. And one of the big checks I have in general is I uh, check I, I check my priorities. Um, in other words, am I trying to put anyone before or above Lisa consistently? Mm-hmm. Now, having served in ministry, there's times when uh, Lisa and Lisa can attest to this. There's times when I've had to say, "Hey, I know we're doing something. I need to step away for a moment, or something's come up. I need to run." But if it's consistently the same person and it's not anything urgent that's when it becomes an issue. So I, I look, I I basically create safeguards um, and checks for myself and my priorities to make sure that I'm not placing anything above Lisa uh, and that I'm always keeping her as my priority. Hmm. Um, Codependency has not necessarily been something I have really struggled with probably because I have um, been my own person since I was about three years old. Um, And so the idea of depending on anyone is not pleasant to me. Yeah. So that isn't necessarily an issue. I think occasionally you do have to make sure on the flip side of what Dean was saying that you're not too codependent on each other as well. Um, Because when you get into a relationship, especially um, one that's a little different like ours, you do need to make sure that, you aren't just hooked on each other and that you have other friends outside of each other. Um, because yes, we understand each other and we understand this struggle and we don't have a bunch of side B married friends that we can rely on. Um, we don't have people that are in mixed orientation marriages. And so it is really important for Dean to have some guy friends and for me to have some female friends that we can also go to as well so that we're not being super codependent with each other on top of that. Um, and so there will be times where like, I haven't seen one of my friends recently and it's like, I love him, but I'm losing my mind. And he'll be like, Hey, why don't you go hang out with your friend? Because you can't just have each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think as Lisa was saying, you know, sometimes I do that with her quite, mm-hmm. not quite often. It makes, it makes it sound like I've tried to always get her out of the house, <laughs> uh, but I will try to like read the signs. Like there, I know there are times when, what what she needs is just time for us to spend together. And I'm also aware that there are times that she just needs to be out of the house and not near me or, or, or the kid or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll encourage her. And I, I know those friends. Uh, generally, I at least know their name, even if I don't like know them personally. Um, I know their names, and so I can suggest that. Um, and I think that's another thing that probably ends up helping with some of the codependency concerns for us is because we know that we're not we're not having to fight between our our spouse and our friends. We're not having to feel like where there's tension between them. There really is almost this idea that our, our friends know that our spouse is going to come first, but they can work with our spouse if something happens or if they need something from us or even to be a a better support for us. Um, So I know like one of my closest friends, Carver uh, has gotten to know Lisa really well. And so that's something they've communicated before where, I've been having a rough day. And so she has messaged him and said, Hey, drop what you're doing and come help my husband right now or something like that. 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing is I do that more than Dean realizes. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so that's a realization for me. I, <laughs> I've known about it like once or twice. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> listener, you're learning this for the first time, as am I. This is apparently far more common than I realize. I think I need to step up my game, because I don't do it as often, so maybe I, I think I need to do it more. Okay. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and, Dean, you were talking about um, that one of the other things of not only putting safeguards is, is you get very attentive at times for sometimes relationships that you realize you could become emotionally codependent in and what would you say are some of the signs that are there any like things that you know that you could describe of signs that maybe stick out to you sometimes in those kind of relationships with maybe other guys yeah um i think some of them might be unique to myself but uh some of the ones that i've looked for before that i that i kind of know okay this is this is not a good sign um if i am going if i'm adjusting my schedule like completely to try to be around the other guy Mm. um if i get upset that i have not heard from him in a set amount of time it might be like a day honestly i'm I'm, Mm -hmm. i can i can get pretty codependent and i have been in the past so like if i hadn't heard from him in the day i'm like oh gosh have i done something wrong if if anything happens if the if i interact with him and i feel that uh, and i walk away feeling like i have failed somehow um, or I'm feeling guilty, or I'm feeling s- upset by the interaction, and it was just a, it was because like, oh, I just asked him how his day was, and he didn't like make it enough, make it enough about me, and so like if I'm if those things start happening, that I go, okay, I've I've done something wrong, like I, I've messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, if yeah. I find myself wanting to basically drop, basically if there's something that like I would drop everything. Uh, including very urgent stuff with with my family or very significant stuff with my family. I would just drop it at the, at the, you know, just for nothing. Like Mm -hmm. the guy just wants to like hang out for five minutes. Oh, I'm going to drop everything and run over there. That those are signs that like, and maybe those are excessive signs. Like I'm, I'm pretty dense. So sometimes I don't (laughs) know those earlier ones. Um, But in general, it's just, I kind of use it. Okay. Where is, where is this guy in my priorities? Um, as compared to where I might be in his. And if there's too much of a difference, like if he, if I would say like, he's my number two priority right after Lisa uh, and my daughter. And then I'm like, his like not even on his top 20 priority list. There's an issue there. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not making his MySpace top eight friends. (laughs) (laughs) He's out. For anyone born after the year 2002 that's listening to this, MySpace okay. was <laughs> the precursor to Facebook. Oh my goodness, MySpace, dear Lord. <laughs> so many traumatic high school moments are coming to mind at this moment. Oh, you're young. I was in college. I Ugh. was in high school. I was Ugh. that kid. So I was that kid that um, got... You know, remember when Facebook was only, you could only register with a college email? Yes. yes. So yeah. I got my siblings to help me with their college email get on Facebook. Of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. I was that kid. <laughs> yeah. For sure. But 
Can I just say, like, I stand you two as a couple, just completely, <laughs> because even though I'm not going to be married, I, I love it because I think that it's so important as a couple to be able to have that balance of we are our own individual people. Like, I'm a person beyond this other person. But yet, obviously, we need to come together and we need to have times together. And, and being able to find that balance in between the two. Like, for instance, my cousin, who I love this woman to death, I will go over to her house and I'll be like, to hang out with her. And I'll be like, where's your husband? And she's like, I kicked him out. I see him all the time. I don't need him here right now. This is our time. But then at the same time, she has times with her husband. And so being able to have that balance of like, yes, we have time together, but yet we know we have other people. And I know that you need other people in your life. And you know that I need other people in my life, but that doesn't replace us, uh-huh. you know? And yeah. great. Yeah. That was, that was pretty critical. I think we, we talked about that even before we were married um, about the, the fact that we knew that we needed our other friends. Cause we had experienced mm-hmm. some of the, some of the times that, when married couples, when people get married, they kind of drop all their friends. Yeah. Um, and having experienced that, we were pretty committed to making sure that didn't happen. Mm. Obviously, there were some relationships that didn't con- necessarily continue, but it wasn't. Yeah. It was more just because of change of life or change of direction of life, all that sort of stuff. It's, it, but it wasn't ever because, well, I'm married now, so I can't see these people. And my close friends stayed close. Mm. Um that uh, for sure like they i stayed close to the to those friends and uh, as did lisa and so um yeah we we wanted to make sure we were we tried to be very intentional about that mm-hmm. when we got married mm-hmm. absolutely okay second question is what advice would you have to a mixed orientation married couple where there has been infidelity it's a little bit more yeah weightier but Mm -hmm. so i i think especially from the people that i was talking to a few people who brought this up the main issue was especially on the side of the queer spouse so if there has been something that has crossed a line and now the married couple is wanting to move past that or, or to go that like what advice would you have in those kind of situations yeah, that, I mean, that's a tough one because uh, and on one hand, uh, you, uh, I would, my advice would be treat infidelity the same way you would treat it for any other marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would need to probably sit down with a very trusted pastor mm-hmm. um, or a, a licensed uh, marriage counselor and talk through what does this look like for our future to um, move past this infidelity. Um, because there's all sorts of considerations there. There's the consideration of, you know, was it a one time? Has it been a building affair? Was it purely physical? Was it emotional and physical? Um, what's the proximity of the um, person that they had the affair with? You know, there's all those sorts of things that play out in more detail. And so sitting down with a, with a mediator um, who is going to counsel, uh, wisely counsel the couple and walk them through this will be critical. And another aspect, though, it is unique because if it is the the, the queer spouse that was, that was unfaithful that had the affair, uh, I, I know Lisa talked about this. That one of the biggest things that we'll do then is for the spouse that is uh, heterosexual or uh, you know is going to feel that pressure of like cementing like they don't want me, they have no desire for me, they they really should not have entered into this. 
And so for them, I think it will, it will be very detrimental uh, to the other partner. Uh, if, if we're talking about a, a straight individual and a queer individual, the straight partner will very much so uh, have difficulty with it. Not to mention, I mean, the queer person is going to struggle too because they'll have some of the similar thoughts of, did I, did I make a mistake by getting married? Uh, they may know, they may be set. They may come back and say, I had the affair and I know for sure that I don't want to continue on in this marriage because I know that I can't love you in that way. They might come back and say, I'm so sorry, it was a mistake and I want to make this up. But then they have to start working to rebuild the trust. But the straight partner is still then dealing with the fact that you, you know, that they cheated, the, the other partner cheated with someone of the same sex. Um, and so, yeah, it's, while there is an aspect of you would probably go about the same path as any other couple, there's going to be extra ramifications. Yeah. Um, especially if it was the queer spouse uh, that was unfaithful. Mm. Makes sense. I mean, my first, um, the first thing that I said when, uh, when Dean read me these questions was something to the... <laughs> I don't know what I can say on this. Go ahead. Um, I was like, I'm pretty sure that I would kick him in the dick. (laughs) But. This is why I love you, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality of it is I know that if Dean came to me and this had happened, like, and I, I trust him and I, this is not me saying that it would ever happen. But like, I feel like my first inclination, like he already said would be, okay, well we need to go see a counselor and we need to have somebody mm. that we can talk through this um, with. Cause yes, you're going to be angry and you're going to be upset and you are going to feel all of those things of, am I not good enough or have I not been able to meet his or her needs? And you know, is this not what my spouse wants anymore? And as someone who has struggled with those things, even though he's never given me a reason to, I know that that would probably push me over a little bit. Um, But I also know that there are going to be mixed orientation marriages that you're also going to have, say it's, it's a relationship like ours. You're also going to have a situation where the person who's straight cheats. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have those same ramifications where the, the queer spouse might be saying, well, clearly I'm not meeting your needs and clearly I'm not what you want anymore. And so there, there really absolutely is a kind of a second level, but I would say that that first level is that you have to treat it like you would any marriage that's had something Mm -hmm. come between you, you know? Um, I have several friends who have had a, a cheating situation and, you know, I've seen beautiful healing happen, um, and, and wonderful, like a a wonderful relationship come after that. But again, you're going to have to be willing to actually work through it and be real and be vulnerable and actually talk about it. Um, and not hide anything at that point, because once you are, once you've opened yourself up to that, you need to just be as raw and blunt as possible, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, not like you need to go into detail, like, well, this is exactly what we did. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that, but I think you do need to be honest and you do need to be open and be willing to discuss those things. Because if you don't, then the other 
spouse is always going to be left wondering. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be myster- mysterious and you're not going to be able to know why. And, and I think you also brought up a really good point about that. We always assume in a mixed orientation marriage that if there's any infidelity, it'd be on the part of the queer spouse. But that's not always necessarily the case. Both are susceptible to temptation. Yep. Well, I mean, I just, I know that in our relationship, like, and we have not had to deal with this. And that's the thing that we've been really, really blessed in. Um, But like real talk, if one of us was going to cheat, it would end up being me. (laughs) Like, no, I mean, like just from, from the amount, you know, the last five years of marriage that we've had. um, And I haven't cheated, Mm -hmm. but I mean, there have been times where things have been rough and I've gotten close with guys and, and Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh crap, I'm getting too close with you. And I need to pull back because you know, there are, there are feelings coming in here and that's completely inappropriate. And like, I mean, and maybe Dean would disagree, but like, I just feel like if, if one of us was going to do it, I would be the one that would be the one getting in trouble. And then I would be the one causing issues in our marriage. Like, I I'm, I feel, don't feel like it's safe for me to comment on whether or not you would <laughs> do it. Uh, just going to throw that one out there. I, this, I am not saying I would cheat. I'm very happy in my marriage. No, and I have I, no intentions of cheating. Um, I just know us. And, yeah. and Dean's like this faithful, precious little man. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I love, I think that that's on, I think that's even a big reason why, like why your marriage has survived, you know, as it has is from that honesty of being like, yeah, like this is, this is, I would be the one to struggle with that, you know, and uh, being able to have that place, as you said, of being honest, whether before and like, you know, without an affair or if an affair happens of just being able to say like, this is where I'm at. This is the situation and let's work from here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think going back to the, the, the question, so if, the, if there is someone listening to the podcast that asked that question specifically, cause they're saying, okay, we, this has happened. What do we, what do we need to do? Uh, like Lisa said, the first step is get with a counselor and pastor, uh, an extra caution because you would be in a mixed orientation marriage, mm-hmm. ensure that you can really trust that counselor or pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I mean, I, I've, some of the counselors I know, and I've talked to before, I know how they would counsel someone. They would say, well, you need a divorce and course mm-hmm. needs to go be queer. And they would, they would do that. Some pastors would just lose their minds and uh, bring in, it'd probably break confidentiality. So it, not to like scare anyone from talking to a counselor or a pastor, but just ensure that you can greatly trust them. And if you are wondering about that, like, please, there's going to be people in the side community that can offer referrals to pastors or counselors. Yeah. Hopefully within your area. So reach out and ask for a referral. Um, if, and also if you go see a counselor and it really doesn't feel right, don't go back. Yeah. Don't, don't, you don't have, you have no commitments to that counselor. If it is, if it is not a good fit or if you don't feel right. Finding a new counselor is like finding a new pair of shoes and some of them just are not going to fit you. And, and that's okay. You can, you can put the pumps back and get some flats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm always going to want heels, but yes, like work, <laughs> <laughs> but legitimately, like I have seen quite a few different counselors and I've had some that have been magnificent, wonderful people who have understood me on a level 
where they could give me adequate advice and, and really steer me in the direction. And, um, and then I have had some that have just told me things that I've been like, are you actually a licensed therapist? Like, mm-hmm. did you fall and bump your head on a stupid stick today? Like, I, yeah, I've so, had the same ex- exact experience. I mean, it's hard. You have to be willing to say, I know what I need in a counselor and being willing, to, like you said, just because I go to a counselor doesn't mean that's the person I need to stick with. If yep. it doesn't work, leave yeah. and, and go find be someone better. Start over with yeah. a new person. But if it doesn't work, it's probably mm-hmm. not going to work and different personalities attract and mm-hmm. work with different people in the yes. same way that friendships and relationships, just because you find someone that you're physically attracted to doesn't mean that you're going to want to actually have to have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Accurate. There's so, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, hot people who are stupid. Yeah. Oh, tell me the, tell me about it for <laughs> sure. Um, uh, and I think I like what you said also about, you know, if you don't know of someone who might be kind of friendly to the whole mixed orientation marriage thing to sometimes maybe go into the side B community for referrals. One thing I might try to see is if I can get, uh, I know we have some amazing side B people that are counselors or have counseling Mm -hmm. groups and stuff. I'm going to see if I can get some links there and put those in the episode notes um, in this episode. Yeah. So if you are a person listening for it and you don't know who in your community might be good, uh, check the episode notes and hopefully I'll be able to get some links to send you there to get you some referrals. Yep. Yeah. And then the final, uh, final thought I have on that question is you know, if this is something that's been happening in the past and you're trying to work through it again, as Lisa said, you, you are basically at a point where you need to have a lot of brutal honesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy but you're at a point where you have to rebuild the trust. And unfortunately that's going to kind of have to start over from scratch. And an aspect of that is going to be being brutally honest, probably in, in ways that won't be fun for either, either spouse. And I, I, I would say that both, both spouses uh, need to be honest. They need to open up. And so uh, there's that, you know, the conversation of expectations, what was missed, what didn't happen, how did we get, basically, how did we get here? And it's going to require both spouses to kind of detail their journey to that spot. And it's going to need to be honest. So, so yeah, getting that, getting that counselor or pastor to mediate and then going through a process of being honest and recounting the journey together. So you, way you can get to a foundation of saying, we're going to start from here and rebuild our trust. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad. Thank you guys for doing this extra time. This has been helpful for me. I'm sure it's been helpful for people listening. Um, And I'm just glad that I've been able to have you guys on again, because like I said, I literally stand you both. (laughs) Love you both. Thanks. We love you too, Josh. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And I still need to go visit you both. (laughs) Yes, you do. So it's going to happen. Um, Well, thanks again. (laughs) Yes, it will happen. Thank you again so much for doing this. And thank you. Until next season.
right. Well, last but not least, we are now back with Matt. Uh, Matt, hey. thanks so much for being back on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. All right. Um, so the question we got um, for you was you talked about in your episode that one of the distinguishing things for a celibate partnership for you is that um, being in a celibate partnership, if one of you were to get married, that would fundamentally change the partnership uh, opposed to other friendships and, and such. So one person was asking, why do you feel that someone cannot be in a celibate partnership and be married at the same time? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. Um, <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, it gets back to the whole issue of priority that I had talked about, um, which really is at the core of a celibate partnership. And I think that you can only prioritize so much in your life. Um, you know, with with friends, you have limited time and resources to give to them, and uh, which is why you can't be friends with everybody. But when it comes to priority in the context of a partnership, it takes on a little bit of, I guess you could say an added consequence or an added weight. Um, because no matter the circumstance, you really have to be prepared to prioritize that person. So what are, so with that in mind, when you think about a person who potentially could be in both a marriage and a celibate partnership at the same time, you can run into a whole host of circumstances where that just wouldn't work out. Like, for example, consider the, um, the circumstance where both your spouse and then your partner became severely ill at the exact same time. So both had to go to the hospital and both had to be treated fairly concertedly by their doctors. Um, you will not then have the opportunity to pr prioritize them both simultaneously. But frankly, given the nature of both of those relationships, that is what would be demanded. So you're going to have to square in that moment with where your priorities really lie. And, um, you know, there are a whole lot of other analogous kind of cases that would come up in the course of any partnership. Um, because again, you know, a, a, like I was saying, you know, a, a partnership is not just you taking and adding into your life. It's a responsibility. You know, you are in a certain sense making a vow to another person that you're going to be there for them in this certain set of circumstances. Um, and that they're going to be able to rely on you and not feel abandoned by you. Um, so for those reasons, I would say it's not possible. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, that definitely makes sense. And because that, that was one thing that really impacted for me of what you said of kind of finding that distinguishing mark between other friendships and celibate partnerships is that there is that added commitment that would be in conflict in for someone married and that's why it, it really can't work that way you know yeah. and um yeah um so we got another question actually um for you what advice would you have for someone who is wanting to or no sorry give me a second i have to remember how to phrase it um so what advice would you have for someone who is wanting to pursue a celibate partnership or 
is pursuing a celibate partnership, but is concerned that because of their job or their situation in their family or their community that might be conservative um, and worried about the ramifications of that partnership, what, um, what advice would you have for that person or that, um, the, those partners together? That's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> though I'm doing a podcast with you, I tend to also be somewhat of a private person, um, which means that I actually don't go around broadcasting the fact that I'm in a celibate partnership all that often. So I know it seems a bit weird that I'm doing a podcast and talking about yeah. this, but I guess I am in a, and I was speaking, maintaining a certain level of anonymity. Um, I don't, I'm by nature a little bit more of a private person than most. So I don't feel the need to discuss it with everybody. Um, <clears throat> my close friends know, my family knows, um, but I have never discussed it at work. And, uh, you know, the only people who know at church are the people who I'm close with. And again, I don't feel really the need to go around telling every last person who I encounter in my life, all of the details of my life. I don't feel like it's ever incumbent upon you to feel the need to disclose that. So I would say, you know, be exactly as private and exactly as public about it as you feel comfortable being and give yourself the opportunity and the leeway to gradually reveal what you're doing at a pace that is comfortable for you. The, the issue of encountering people who are not going to understand are not going to agree even with what you're doing, I think is almost inevitable. Like you, you, you just have to accept that. Um, it's going to be a part of your life when you get into a celibate partnership, no matter how you define it. And I, I think part of your mental health, frankly, in dealing with that is not trying to convince people um, who are pretty determined not to understand you in the first place mm -hmm. or you know, whose opinion about what you're doing, frankly, isn't going to be relevant to you living your life in the first place either. So mm. frankly, that would be my advice. Mm, that's good. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for, um, for being willing to come on to the podcast, even, <laughs> even being a private person, <laughs> um, because I, I know even from people that have written in um, that, what you've shared has really definitely helped multiple people. So I want to thank you for that. No, it's, it's my pleasure. You know, I yeah. want to get the conversation out there. So. Well, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this question and response episode. Check back next week. I am going to be doing a review of the season where I'm going to be sharing what I've learned and my thoughts after doing all of these interviews. And as well, I'm going to be sharing some exciting news about season two, which you are not going to want to miss. So have a great week and we'll see you next week. Well, see might not be the best term. So have a great week.